listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. When I was about 18 years old, I remember having dinner with this uh, neighbor of ours who was kind of like a grandfather figure to uh, our family. The four McAllister boys would always, at some time or other, spend time up at uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wright's house. And he had this marvelous library of uh, books that I always found so fascinating. Uh, He showed me how to look at various maps and you could see how, like, you know, measure rainfall and so forth based on the colors of the maps. And I was colorblind, so I couldn't really tell what he was saying at all, but it didn't matter. It was just spending time with Mr. Wright. And he had kind of this John Wayne-like presence, honestly. I mean, it was, he, he was massive and a towering intellect as well, which is probably not exactly like John Wayne, but you get the idea. His mind was like a six-shooter. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) He had this talent for using few words and making them count. My family moved down to Palo Alto, and uh, we invited him for dinner. He came with his wife, and uh, I was espousing some particular political view that was it was probably deeply troubling to my parents because of how you know socialist in nature it was and how I was seriously considering voting for Reagan to bring about a faster revolution you know something bizarre like that very unsophisticated and <laughs> funny and while my mother's jaw dropped and my father's jaw dropped, Mr. Wright just began to smile. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this isn't working. Because I was really trying to push Mr. Wright's buttons. You know, this guy who was unflappable was still proving to be unflappable. (laughs) And so uh, he just smiled and he said, you know, Michael, Your job, your job as a student is to question everything. Everything we've ever done, all of us who are dying out, who are getting old, your job is to question and then make it better. And I was thinking, yeah, that's that's, that's a pretty good idea. Question everything and try to make it better. I've never forgotten that, ever forgotten. I thought that was such brilliant advice. And what was really cool about it was that it wasn't just to me. It was to everyone. Question. The more comfortable we are with what we don't know, as I've said a tremendous amount over the last month, we've kind of been working on this, the more comfortable we are with what we don't know, the less we suffer. If we are all about what we do know, 
all we're doing is allowing ego to run the show. It's what we wonder about. It's what we question. Can we be very comfortable with that? That's our work. And it shows up in the form of meditation. In the form of meditation, we'll sit here, you know, in these, in these positions of stability, and we just try to remain calm. We try to remain alert. And we try to avoid absolutely nothing. That's it. We do it here in kind of a controlled, safe place. And then we do it outside all the time so that this life becomes a meditation. So that this life becomes a meditation. And that meditation is really kind of anchored in not knowing. Not knowing. It doesn't mean we walk around brain dead. It means that we walk around very comfortable with what we don't know. Very comfortable with what we don't know. So we can enact that here. As you're sitting tonight, just try. Try to allow calm to infuse the busy. Try to let alertness infuse the distraction. Don't hide. <laughs> Don't avoid anything. Anything that comes up. Anything that comes up. If there's a thought, all I want you to do is with your still, alert presence, just recognize thinking. If there's a sense, either pleasure or discomfort that's going on, with your still alert presence, just recognize, oh, sensation. Just be aware of sensation and thought, body and mind. Just be aware. Don't run away. Don't look for distraction. Don't look for anything. Just be with what is. Okay? And if you suddenly find that there is a space where there is no real sensation and there's no real thought, there's just sitting, rest there. Do not make the mistake of going, whoa, here it is. This is what he was talking about. Right here. Oh, because it'll go away, I promise. It'll go away. <laughs> just be comfortable with what is. Comfortable with what is. Okay? Let's sit. So for the third time in a week, uh, I had a question from a practitioner that I thought was quite, uh, it's quite interesting when something like that happens where you get the same question three times in, in a week. It's clearly some type of uh, cosmic giggle. Uh, but anyways, the question was from 
a person who is not a uh, the third the third time I got the question was from a, a personal friend who is uh, has no interest in spirituality really uh, or I should say maybe their their spirituality is relates much more um, keenly to their car their house and their clothes and I just love them <laughs> he's just marvelous uh, <laughs> and he said, he said, so what's the deal with Buddhism? What's the deal? What's this? And then give it to me from 60,000 feet, he said. I want from 60,000 feet. Give me the overview. And I kind of cracked up because I'd had this similar uh, uh, question posed to me, like I said, twice before in the week. And I said, well, hmm. It's about being untangled. It's about being totally untangled from everything. No entanglements. And that's the view from 60,000 feet. And then, of course, I kind of popped off and I said, do you want some topography? Do you want to know like what the the mountain range looks like and so forth? Yeah, 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 yeah. Give give that to me, because I have no idea what you're talking about. So you yeah, give it, you know, this no entangled. How could how could you not be totally entangled in this world? Of course, I said, well, you you can't be, you can't be unentangled without practice. And so that's where we start getting into the topography of this map. That's where the, that's where the texture kind of comes into the whole thing. If we start looking at the teachings of awakening from 60,000 feet, be they Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, Muslim, Jew, doesn't matter. No matter what they are, we are seeing, in essence, a mountain that we are endeavoring to climb. And in climbing this mountain, as the altitude increases, there's less and less and less of what we're used to. We let go of more and more and more of the stuff because we don't have a Sherpa. We don't have anyone to carry it for us. We do, however, and this is the cool thing, have guides. Every single Buddha has gone through exactly what you're going through. Precisely what you're going through. Every single awakened being has gone into the space of, well, you know, I'm kind of attracted to this practice on some level. Uh, but I'm not really sure what it's about. And then, ooh, they get kind of juiced by it. It's like, oh, this is pretty cool. Actually, I feel more relaxed. And, you know, and then it gets tough. The climb gets more steep. They're carrying so much stuff. And from 60,000 feet at that moment, there's a separation between those who will carry on and those who will stop. And those that will stop, it's more important for them to hang on to what they have than to continue the adventure. And it's kind of a beautiful thing when you 
within yourself decide that the the adventure is more important than all the stuff you're carrying. So I kind of go on this diatribe, and then my, my pal says, okay, so when you say let go, does that mean let go of, like, my wife and kids, to let go of them, you know, like, absolutely not in the way that you're thinking of it. And he goes, well, what do you think I'm thinking? I go, well, that, that you should just, like, you know, run off and join a monastery or something like that and leave them here to fend for themselves. He goes, yeah, well, that's actually what I was thinking. Is that what you're telling me to do? Because if you're telling me to do that, you, you know, you're full of, full of crap, and so is Buddhism from 60,000 feet or 20,000, I don't care. It's, you know, I don't care. No, actually, it means do you really love your kids? He says, well, of course. Do you really love your wife? Almost 70% of the time, he says. So he was, he was kidding, of course. I started cracking up. But he said, yes, of course I do. I said, then you don't hang on to them. If you really love someone, you set them free. You don't keep your kids as kids. That's not the goal. Your goal is to help your kids become great adults. Any good parent is in that space. Any good parent is automatically schooled in the art of letting go. Any good spouse or partner does exactly the same thing. They're not interested in holding their partner down. They're interested in dancing with what is. So in letting go of the spouse means that in his case, he lets her grow. That he lets his kids grow, lets them evolve. And then when he gets good at that, he turns the entire mirror of consciousness on himself and he lets himself grow. He lets himself evolve. And this happens by letting go of the baggage. When you recognize you don't have a Sherpa, you're climbing and it's getting exhausting and you still have all these entanglements that you're carrying along with you and you realize that all you have to do is let them go. That the difficulty is not letting go. The difficulty is trying to continue carrying all this stuff up the mountain. So topographically, we can look at this mountain as being this, this it starts getting increasingly steep, and you can't carry that stuff with you. Our conversation went on a little bit further, and he said, well, can you use another metaphor? And I said, do you have like a water filter, one of those pitchers, things, you know, you, you pour water in, fills up, and then you get, you know, kind of clear, pure water uh, at the end. It goes through a charcoal filter, something like that. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, okay, well, that's what meditation is. The water at the end of this process is still water. You at the end, any of us at the end of a meditative practice are still who we are. We are just less of the entanglements. And so we can look at this as really a great definition for enlightenment or awakening. Awakening or enlightenment is quite literally the disidentification with thought. 
we're no longer tangled up in thought. We're also no longer tangled up in the judgments we have in mind in relationship to our thoughts and sense experiences. We're no longer tangled up in our sense experiences. It's no longer about our likes and dislikes, our preferences. Many of you know I prefer chocolate to vanilla by like a lot. Okay? It's kind of an attachment of mine. And it's so cool every time I'm faced with that choice. I know exactly the direction I probably will go, but I always wonder, maybe I'll pick vanilla this time. I don't know. But the preferences that we have become these incredible, uh, how shall I say, breadcrumbs, like Hansel and Gretel, breadcrumbs to the witch's house. In other words, they, they're breadcrumbs to our uh, attachments, any preference that we might have. If I'm attached to chocolate, okay, it automatically then engenders suffering. If I am attached to Pinot, Pinot Noir, as opposed to cheap red wine, that leads to suffering. If I'm attached to wine, if I'm attached to Coca-Cola or water, if I'm attached, okay, that's a great way of saying tangled. I'm entangled. So from 60,000 feet, we're looking at a pathway up this mountain that frees us of our entanglements. It frees us of our identification with mind and body without denying mind and body. It just, it opens us up. It allows us to live a life that is not only alert, but it's also calm. And it's also one that doesn't hide anywhere. We actually face our world. We face what's going on continually, continually, fearlessly, fearlessly. We recognize the higher we climb, the less stuff we need, the more available we are to ourselves and everything else. We become literally in alignment, in alignment with all that is free. Now, we can have some hard, a hard time with that word free, so let me just back up slightly. The Buddha was asked, what is it that you teach? And he said, well, I teach suffering and the end to suffering. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So in essence, it's kind of, this is kind of a cool, I think kind of a cool uh, quotation because it tells us what awakening is not, doesn't it? What awakening, it doesn't, he, he never says, here's what awakening is, or here's what it feels like, or here's what you should expect. He says enlightenment or awakening is the end of suffering, right? It's the end of our entanglements. Our entanglements are what generate our suffering. That's all. That's all he's teaching. And any Buddha, male or female, will give you that same exact prescription. Every single one will say that. 
It's about not being caught. And this just shines, I think, a really beautiful light on the whole idea of enlightenment because then it's no longer, if it's just about not being caught, it's no longer your enlightenment. It's not a personal thing. It's not, a person is not any more enlightened than this orchid. What is this orchid? It's fully an orchid. It's absolutely ordinary in its profound beauty. And we start seeing that behavior in other people who walk this walk and are able to get to that point on the mountain where they decide the adventure of awakening is more important than the stuff that I'm tangled in. I therefore will let go of what I'm tangled up in. Now our entanglements usually usually represent fears. They usually, we believe, our egos use them to defend against fears that we may have. And the fears always center around loss of something. And the miracle of this is, and this may, in fact, be one, one area of the teaching where it's kind of like it's faith-related, which I don't, like, I don't like saying because it usually freaks people out. But the miracle of this work is that the higher one climbs up the mountain, the less they are entangled. Okay? And the less they are entangled, the more they recognize they don't need the less entangled they become, the more they recognize they don't need. And there's a certain steadiness that kind of creeps up and arises. There's a very, like I said, a steadiness, a calm. A calm appreciation for what is. And that calm appreciation for what is allows us to face our lives with aplomb, with total equanimity. We know that the universe is going to give us exactly everything we need in order to climb higher up the mountain. It will also offer us every single thing we could possibly want in the way of an entanglement. We just need to choose. And at that point, the higher up the mountain we get, the more we actually have this mindfulness this, we become aware of something that's kind of taking us off the path. And the path can be quite treacherous up the mountain. It really can be. It, it reminds me of, uh, uh, there's this, uh, on the Pacific, uh, Pacific Coast Trail in Marin County, it, there's, there are a couple of uh, uh, places on it that are just, st the, the view is absolutely stunning. But man, you don't want to go off the trail too far. Because on the one side, you'll have the worst poison oak experience um, in about an hour and a half after you hike that way, or if you fall off the road the other way, you go crashing onto the rocks, neither of which are really good places to be. So it's walking this middle way. It's walking this middle way that becomes so critical. And the teacher that you have, and you'll find that they're all over the place, will always help to kind of knock you back onto, onto the path. Or... Or, sometimes the best teachers will ask us what it feels like to be there in the poison oak. They won't rescue us from the poison oak. They go, oh, how does that feel? 
Krankheit. So we begin to once again align. We align ourselves with a certain steadiness, with a certain appreciation for calm, a certain appreciation for alertness, a certain appreciation for the fact that the universe will give us everything we want. We don't have to avoid or hide anything, anytime, at any point in time. We can just show up at all points, for all points. And so this is what it looks like from 60,000 feet. And where the rubber hits the road, what it looks like on the ground is just this very moment. Having both of those views simultaneously is awakening. It's a non-identification with our mind, with our bodies with whatever judgment we may have. It's a non-identification. So we have the giant bumblebee upstairs. <laughs> have you seen the thing? It's huge. It's, it's enlightened. It's an awakened bee, yeah. <laughs> has no attachments Un unentangled so one of the things I neglected to to mention was that at the end of um, my uh, my dissertation with my pal on what Buddhism was from 60,000 feet um, he uh, looked at me squarely in the eye and he said that has absolutely no appeal. <laughs> so I knew I'd done my, done my work. Absolutely no appeal. <laughs> so any questions that I can help? Bobby. Yes. Yeah, you don't know my relationship to chocolate, though. <laughs> yeah. You're right. You're right. All kidding aside, I mean, I'm teasing you, of course, but it's the, the um, and I'm saying this from newly firsthand experience, the connection that we feel w with these new lives that are brought into our lives, it, I, there are no words for it, okay? But being disentangled means with our children, means allowing for them to evolve. Allow, it's allowing for them to face their own entanglements without trying to untangle them for them because otherwise they won't develop the muscles needed, the skills needed to unentangle themselves. And this is different for each and every parent. My sense is that among the greatest gifts we can give our children within reason is to allow failure to occur. That's a huge one. Failure, in other words, loss. 
they understand what it's like to really truly succeed on, on, on their own, and they also know what it's like to lose. They know what it's like to uh, perform when the stakes are high, and they know what it's like not to be able to live up to their own expectations. But we allow for situations to occur really gently. We meet this with our children gently. Otherwise, their egos can look at us as being the problem in an overinflated way. Our spouses can do the same thing. Or they can then begin to look, they can look at us as the problem as long as we meddle too much. And that doesn't mean we can't support them. It doesn't mean we can't participate in their lives, but we participate from an unattached space, from a place of wonder. I wonder what's going to happen, not let's make this happen. We're schooled to treat that whole situation differently. So maybe another way of talking about uh, the practice of awakening is to recognize how much it is about unlearning our conditioning. And I have no idea what would be best for you or your children. I have no idea what would be best other than to just continually suggest that our work on this, in this life, at least from the perspective of the teaching, is to be helpful. Not superficially helpful, but deeply helpful. And when we are deeply helpful, we are, we are consciously and compassionately helping others achieve their own awakening. So just give that a shot. <laughs> yeah. Just to, just to be devil's advocate. Devil's advocate. I love that. <laughs> Your friend who didn't want to be a Buddhist. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is he on, on a scale of enlightenment? Is he totally unenlightened? I mean, he sounds like kind of a happy guy. He's perfectly enlightened. Okay. But... We're all perfectly enlightened. Okay? We're all perfectly enlightened. Some people just have more mud on the uh, lampshade than others. I think he's got a tremendous amount of mud on the lampshade. And I think he's in for a real interesting decade. And I think he knows he's in for a real interesting decade. And he's hanging on. And the universe has this great way of making sure that he can't, he will not be able to hang on. None of us can. None of us can. So, I don't know whether I'm going to be around to see what happens, and I could be totally wrong, okay? I could be totally wrong. But he's in this amazing space of, uh, he doesn't have a financial care in the world. He really doesn't, uh, but he lives also this deep, okay? And he knows it, and, he, and it's, no, it's no longer satisfying. And so where he does get his thrills are on things that will keep him this deep. So it's, it, it's, it's, it's neat to watch. I mean, it, it, I love him with all my, I've known him for, you know, since we were little kids. And it's it's neat to watch only because it's it's a it's a reflection of a characteristic in me too any of us 
Any of us can live that deep. Any of us can be taken away by our entanglements. Any of us can be satisfied with our entanglements. But we're here. And if we're here in this room, in this moment, chances are we're looking at those entanglements with a, 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 something extra. There's something, we're looking for something. There's a longing in most spiritual seekers. And when they recognize that there's nothing to seek, that it's all already there in a really powerful way, and then they, they can consciously meet it continually, then they get to go teach somewhere else. Yeah. Thanks for the devil's advocacy. The devil actually is our pal in this practice. Okay? Um, Mara, we sometimes refer to in Buddhist terms, we refer to Mara is, is, he will tempt us always. And he will bring us suffering. Bring us suffering gladly, right? And then what's the path? The path leads us to the end of suffering because we begin to study our suffering so intently and we use calm and we use a certain degree of, um, I think I, I referred to it as we use calm, we use stillness and equanimity, knowing that whatever Mara is bringing us if we look at it carefully enough with those qualities, it leads us to the royal road, the royal road to awakening. So, he'll get there. And if, if he doesn't get there now, he'll get there right at the moment before death, when he recognizes, oh, wait, I have to go now. I have to let go of this. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I saw another hand up here. I wanted, to, yeah. Ever really be unentangled and unattached while you're afraid of your own death? No. No, and but let me be really. There, I'm going to argue semant some semantics here. Um, if there is fear of your own death, there's still attachment to this idea, this mental construct of self. Okay? What the meditation practice does is we keep running the water through the filter, so to speak, or we keep clarifying the butter and scooping the stuff off, whatever. The, this purification process continues. The distillation continues. What we recognize is very, very consciously there is no self that is going to die. The self that's going to die is the stuff we don't need. That which survives, death in essence, is what is timeless. It is the present moment, which is all you are at your essence. And we recognize that. It's no longer an abstraction that the teacher is talking about. It's no longer a book. It's something that is, it's a felt sense. It is recognized consciously. It is known with a capital K. And in that space of fearlessness, all right, there are no entanglements because nothing is lacking. Everything is totally full. <laughs> That's when we summit. That's when we summit the mountain. And that's just the beginning.
then we come home. Okay? And coming home from that place can be an amazing adjustment. That's for next week, the adjustment. <laughs> Thank you all for coming.